Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast, a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. Today's guest is Amy Keane. Amy's career has included senior roles driving innovation at agencies such as Havas, Mindshare and Starcom, and now as Brand and Innovation Director at the consultancy Andus. Every step of the way, whether it's through her writing, poetry or public speaking, Amy has always championed a fairer, more progressive future for people in the industry. Most recently, she was part of the group who launched the DICE Charter, a new initiative aimed at promoting diversity and inclusion at conferences and events. We have a wide-ranging discussion about DICE itself and diversity in general. If you enjoy the show, please do hit subscribe and leave a review in your podcast app. Amy, thank you uh, so much for finding the time to do this podcast. Pleasure. I'm very excited to. I know it's a, I know it's a little bit of a crazy time at the moment, so uh, yeah. hopefully the recording of this is all is as smooth as it can be. So to kick off, I just wanted to ask you the question which we start all of our discussions with, and that is, what's the wrong you want to write? Okay, so uh, in every industry, who you see on stage at an event or a conference is supposed to represent the industry in its entirety uh, and the future of that industry. So if you don't see someone like you on stage, how on earth are you supposed to feel like you belong or, you know, included? So DICE exists to help make sure that events are more diverse in their lineup and their thinking because currently it's very male, it's very white, it's very middle class and so on and that isn't good enough um, and this stuff really matters. No that's really well put and I guess what you say there about if you can't see yourself up there how are you meant to yeah. know that you have that opportunity is really is really poignant. So obviously DICE is, is, is a relatively new thing that you've, mm. you've got involved with. When you um, when it launched a couple of months ago you tweeted that um, you wanted to stop just moaning about manals and do something about it. Um, I guess, firstly, what's a manal and, and why have you been <laughs> moaning about them so much? <laughs> I, I don't, why did that make me laugh so much? Um, a manal is, uh, I mean, I didn't coin it. It's been a word that's, um, it's a word that's been around for a really long time. It's an all-male panel. Uh, so it's extremely commonplace even now for conferences to have like the panel session where they have a really boring question like is influencer marketing on the up or something really tedious like that yeah. um and 50 percent of the time and this is across every industry the panel will be all men they'll normally be all of a certain age they'll be all white likely they'll all have a similar educational background. So um, over time, lots of people started to realise that that was um, a massive wrong. Uh, so they, they nicknamed it Manal and it's become a shorthand actually for a lack of uh, inclusion in any conference. How, how do events fall into this trap so like continuously, even though, as you say, it's not something which has only been recently mm. highlighted as an issue? How do they fall into this trap? Um, crikey. Okay, so so um, it's it's a really complex set of situations that result in having an all male lineup. I don't want to be so so. The reason why I moaned about it so much is because I used to when I first started working fifteen years ago. I used to work in events, and so I know that it's a craft. I know that um, 
it's something that so if you're an events organizer you should be so passionate about it creating a, you know a lineup that stimulates people that gives them a really challenging point of view um but over the last however many years five ten years events have just been about making money um and so you get lots of companies that just churn out these events and events organizers don't have enough time yeah. to secure a really nice fresh diverse lineup um from a practical perspective it's just a fact that women have less confidence, uh, particularly on panels where they might get caught off guard. Uh, they they are less comfortable with just winging it and talking on the fly. I mean, there's loads of psychological reasons for that, which we probably don't have time to go into, but events organizers find it harder to get women to take part in events and also women are more likely to back out at the last minute. Uh, so, so we totally understand at DICE that the default and um, the people who will always say yes is white men who've been educated to a certain level. Um, that doesn't mean that it's right though. And so just to just to think a bit more about Dice then, so how, how did that come about? What, what actually sparked that and, and what brought you and the other co-founders together then? So yeah, I was moaning a bit. <laughs> so every time, um, I don't even have loads of followers. I've got over 5,000 followers on Twitter, which is a, it doesn't make me influence the status by any means. Um, but I've been around for a really long time. So um, I guess I've I've got a voice that some people listen to. And, and every time every time I saw one of these all-male panels or a lineup at a conference, I saw there was one conference on fashion. Uh, I think the subject was fashion in 2020. And every single speaker of 15... Um, it was it was hosted by the interactive media and retail group. Every single speaker was a man, wow. and I could not contain my anger, <laughs> my anger and frustration. So I would often tweet about all of these various different events that just hadn't even considered the fact that fifty percent of the world's population are women, um, and that doesn't and that's before you even get onto the subject of race. Um, uh, and I started to get bored bored is probably the wrong word I just started to grow weary of having to complain about it all the time and call people out one by one um, and so it was someone on Twitter a guy called Faisal suggested that uh, we should get together and create some kind of charter that, that people sign up to okay. it's a really interesting backstory actually so he works in healthcare and he has a friend who also works in healthcare and he noticed that whenever he was going to these like pharmaceutical conferences that there was one key demographic that or audience that was never considered and never on stage at any pharmaceutical conference and that was patients oh, wow. so you had all these like big businesses uh talking about drugs and trials and progress but no one ever asked their consumer the, the people they're doing it for yeah. yeah for any opinion or any you know uh they were never on stage so he created a charter called patients included which set out all the ways in which patients should be included in pharmaceutical conferences moving forward i mean pharma in general is an industry that kind of needs a bit more uh trust <laughs> within it anyway yeah. and um yeah, yeah. Uh, so so he created this charter and it, it included stuff like you know not all patients will be able to afford to go to a conference so pay for their travel and you know consider having yeah, this kind yeah. of session where you can ask people's opinions um and over time and it was he just created a it was just a, a web page with a charter on it and over time people started to follow it because whilst it wasn't enforced 
you looked really bad if you didn't. And that's really interesting, the parallels between different industries, because or you'd think that the marketing and advertising industry would be sort of um, more self-aware, right, than it, than it seemingly is. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god no <laughs> i mean you'd think wouldn't you you'd yeah. think like we're in the business of uh selling to people and understanding people um but what struck me over the last what struck me with dice and releasing dice we started with the advertising industry but uh it's for every industry yeah um what we realized is how unself-aware lots of people are um, lots of people don't, the challenge is lots of people don't see their bias, they don't understand their bias, they don't even understand what they're doing wrong. Um, I've had lots of people say to me, we shouldn't have diversity for the sake of it, which is one of the weirdest, weakest arguments I've ever heard within diversity. Um, uh, it's a really lazy thing to say. What do they mean by that exactly for the sake of it? So a lot of the, a lot of the I guess we'll talk about dice in more detail in a bit, but yeah. a lot of the um, pushback that I get from a certain type of person, um, and I hate to generalise, but and I don't want to offend you as as a man, um, don't worry. But that certain <laughs> that certain type of person is always a white man of a certain age. The the pushback I get from them is, who cares? Who cares what somebody looks like? All I care about is diversity of thought. And what they fail to understand is that if you're a white man of a certain age, you have a privilege that means that diversity has never really been much of an issue for you. Yeah. So it's a luxury to be able to think that. It's a luxury to be able to think, who cares what anyone looks like? I just want to hear different opinions. It doesn't work that way. And I, I, don't, I don't judge anyone too harshly for not realising it doesn't work that way. But um, what I've noticed is that particularly in our industry, in, in advertising, there's a real reluctance for people to admit that they're wrong um, mm. and that they have some things to learn. That's interesting because that, the, the diversity of thought argument is very valid from a more sort of philosophical perspective, I guess. But as you say, yeah, in, yeah. In, in practice, day to day, when you're trying to make decisions and trying to make the right decisions, it just doesn't like it doesn't yeah. doesn't really have much effect. Yeah. I mean and also there's stages, right? You need to have diversity of human beings first. And then you can get to yes. the thought uh afterwards. You need to get the basics right first. Hi there. If you're enjoying the show so far, please don't forget to subscribe. I've got some great episodes in the pipeline, including something really special for Mental Health Awareness Week later this month. I'd also like to invite you to join the Journey Further Book Club. This is a learning community designed for time-pressured marketers, where we share bite-sized insight from the best business books, all aimed at helping you become better at your job. Just head to journeyfurther.com to find out more. Now back to Amy. Well, that probably brings us on to Dice in a little bit of more detail then. I was really impressed when I read through the charts for the first time because I was like, I mean, it only takes a little bit digging behind the surface to see that a lot of work went into it. How did you how did you sort of uh, approach researching and, and, and writing the charter? Um, thank you, by the way, because uh, it okay. was it was it was a good four months work um, with lots of different stakeholders. And I'm not the best at stakeholder management. <laughs> so It was quite quite the journey. Um, we realised because it's such a 
sensitive subject as it should be and it's hugely I mean who doesn't have an opinion on this subject um, some more valid than others we realized that we had to make it as robust and objective as possible so that people contested it um, as little as possible so we decided to base it on the UK Equality Act of 2010 yeah because within that act there's nine protected characteristics within which um, you should not discriminate okay. so that's very difficult to argue with so within those nine uh, protected characteristics you have uh, gender gender not sex um, but you have gender you have age disability race religious background um, yeah. and some others that are slightly re less relevant for events um, sexuality uh, and and once we had that as our base we knew where the charter should go because we knew what inclusion actually means at least to the the very least to in in, in the eyes of UK law um, so we created it around that and then we used various national statistics to provide a proxy for how many people of various different groups should in theory be on stage okay. um, but that was just the first part the second part which was quite a long but so in such an interesting process was the consultancy phase so what we did was enlist um, diversity groups that represented all of those different characteristics mm -hmm. and we created a central google doc that everybody could see and we took the charter point by point so there's 10 points in the charter that cover um, lineup content and marketing because uh, inclusion obviously covers, you know, the, the whole journey of an event. Yeah. Um, and we asked everyone to provide feedback on every single element of the charter, but in a way that everybody could see each other's feedback. Um, we also asked people for feedback on the scoring system because there's a scoring system. And we even asked people for feedback on the logo right, because yeah. that as a symbol also represents diversity and, and inclusion. And, and we thought it was important to get people's feedback on every single element. What was lovely was there within that Google Doc? Uh, Google Docs are amazing. Yeah, they are. <laughs> by the way, I saw that uh, Jack from Twitter tweeted a Google Doc the other day to show the transparency of giving money. Anyway, yeah. that's a digression. <laughs> um, uh, everyone started chatting in this Google Doc. Wow. So you had someone representing like a disability group. You had someone representing. Uh, it was a, it was a, an organization called Uninvisibility, which represents people over the age of 50. Okay. They were all chatting with each other about what they thought and what they agreed and what they d didn't agree. And so it felt like a really collaborative process. Um, once we'd done that, that was enough to release the charter. But um, when we released it to the public, we were very um, clear that it's a work in progress. Yeah, and I guess it's interesting you talk around how it's how it's split up as well. What what was the thinking around doing it in, in 10 points? I guess that, am I right in thinking that uh, impacts how an event can become certified or what level they're certified at? Yeah, so um, it was uh, it was 10 points for ease, but also it just kind of worked out well. Um, you uh, get scored. So um, uh, there's a possible score of 100%. Uh, every single point of the charter is worth 10%. And we wanted to make it... We wanted to make the barrier to entry really low because we wanted to. We just wanted people to try. It, this isn't the diversity police. It's not. I'm not an authority on diversity. I'm not really qualified to do that. But I do know how to craft official documents. Um, uh, we wanted to make the barrier to die certification very low. So uh, for any events company that gets over forty percent. So 
as long as if you try a little bit you'll get certified um you you are approved but if you get 90% 100% your dice recommended so you've obviously really tried and diversity is obviously at the heart of your um uh, your organization or your planning process and what have the conversations been like so far with um events planners who've who've come to you for certification they've been really 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 positive so um i've been i've been having a, a lot of calls from events organizers all over the country because also this isn't just a london thing um i've been having calls with events organizers all over the country and i didn't you know it's so funny you always see the bad stuff yeah. i didn't realize how progressive so many people are and how much they're committed to making their audiences feel included and seen and heard so it's been really like really life affirming you know mm. um some of the really big organizations within the advertising space like advertising week beamer god who else the iab we'd only just launched and then lockdown happened like three weeks yeah. later and <laughs> and unfortunately all the poor events companies um uh had to stall for a bit they've taken it really seriously advertising week is a perfect example the stuff they do um within their commitment to diversity is like it's next level um of course so they have that 3000 events in one week yeah. or so actually i think i'm probably exaggerating maybe it's six oh god who knows a lot yeah. 300 whatever it's it's a number a lot. <laughs> they have a lot of events across one week they have like 600 speakers or something um they still manage to have 60% women across all of those um events they yeah. still managed to have i think it was 71% bame um participation across all of those events uh age was represented across all of them uh they give away free tickets to students they um subsidize parents returning from work they do all of these wonderful initiatives um and it kind of put a lot of the other ones you know last year i think it was last year de mexico is yeah. that how you say it yeah yeah in germany yeah um had 60 all-male panels. Wow. Six, six zero. They don't give a shit. And it's it's a money-making thing and um, it's embarrassing. So you look at something like that event where it's actually quite offend I was, I, I would, I'm offended yeah. that there's that many all-male panels. Um, and then you look at something like Advertising Week and you're like, okay, this is the beacon. Yeah, there's um, such a gulf. Yeah, there is, yeah. And is is it like you 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 pull out that example of an event doing it so badly? Is is that because perhaps there's like no one that there's no one who's actually responsible for keeping an eye on these things? It's almost like these big event organisers should have a diversity officer. Sounds like a very sort of like strange phrase, but you know what I mean. Someone who's ultimately mm -hmm. responsible for measuring this stuff and uh, account someone who's accountable for it. I think that's a really good idea for now. Um, I think, I mean, ideally, give it a few years, that role should be redundant. Yeah. Um, this is the thing that we say about DICE. So DICE stands for Diversity and Inclusion in Conferences and Events. So already we've been asked to expand into judging panels and other areas, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a voluntary um, effort, so that would be a bit much for us. But what we say is that um, we only want it to exist for a couple of years yeah because if we're still talking about this in 10 years time like these basics i mean we're still going to probably be talking about racism in millennia i would imagine yeah um but if we're still talking about diversity and something as basic as an event that's that's uh 
quite a shocking state of affairs. So yeah, I think diversity officers for the next few years, but hopefully we won't, we won't need them if everyone kind of if everyone does what they say they intend to do. As you say, if it goes well, it should make itself redundant. It's it's interesting that you mentioned sort of judging panels and the awards industry as well because mm. I uh, I saw someone tweet yesterday and it was uh, a list by the drum and it was the top twenty awarded creative directors and I think two were women uh, and the rest of the eighteen are men. Um, <laughs> oh. I, I mean, again, un- yeah. unsurprising <clears throat> that when you see it presented in that in in such sort of yeah. stark terms, it's uh, it, it's quite yeah. eye opening. What was their what was their reason for sharing that list? Were they trying to highlight the fact that men are awarded more, or what was the it person just another who tweeted one of those... it? Um, oh no! What was the list like? Was it just another one of those fucking lists? You know, like there's was... there's lists for everything now. <laughs> I, I I can only presume it was from a something that's recently been. Um, that's recently been published. I guess even then, it kind of. Um, it shows how important it is that the media are also sort of considerate of this dialogue, right? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. What people what people consume just all, all all feeds into it. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about about the sort of the content side of things and the marketing side mm-hmm. of things. The events. It's like mm-hmm. the, obviously the manual is the thing which is obviously yeah. sort of the most visible element of it. Um, mm. How should events approach it from a content perspective, and how should they make sure they're they're aligning to diversity when it comes to that? So um, within the charter, we 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 cover off content because it's not just uh, yeah, like you say, it's not just lineups. Um, one thing that people forget is that the case studies that you uh, showcase at an event, the research you showcase at an event might yeah. have. Um, an unfortunate bias so this is even I mean this is where stuff like ageism often comes in because you get lots of events that talk only about that kind of the glorified 18 to 30 uh, target audience like I obviously have worked in advertising for 15 years everyone just kind of swoons over this young audience, or Generation Z, or, or whatever it is now, um, they swoon over this young audience, even though they have less money. And there's a huge amount of ageism and sexism in a lot of case studies that are presented at, um, right. at conferences. Women, women over 50 is a perfect example. Like They have a huge amount of purchasing power, yet no one ever talks about them. Mm. Um, also within the code, we say that uh, it's really important to consider how um, you make... Uh, groups like the LGBTQ plus community feel heard and seen in case studies as well. I mean, yeah. again, that's a huge amount of purchasing power and a huge part of life that um, can be often treated as a token yeah. at an event. Um, or well, it's treated as a token by marketers a lot as well, just turning stuff rainbow. Um, but it's really important to kind of consider that within events so you get scored on that. But also in terms of your marketing and the people that you market the event to, in the UK Equality Act of 2010 and its protected characteristics, class isn't, isn't one of them. Um, I guess because, I guess it's because it's quite hard to measure because class is actually, particularly in the UK, it's quite a mental thing. Yeah. Uh, and people find it really hard to define. 
Um, if you're working class, what then makes you middle class? Is it that you go to university or whatever? Um, so, so what we say is that within your marketing, you need to consider people of different financial backgrounds and uh, whether they'd be able to attend a £400 ticket conference, um, whether they'd be able to, you know, whether a speaker who isn't middle class would be able to travel to that conference if, if it's in London and they live somewhere else. Um, so stuff like that, it's, it's kind of, um, it's not assumed. Yeah. Um, and so, so we thought it was really important to include all, include all of those things as well. No, that's interesting. We, we run a few sort of small events ourselves as an agency mm. and yeah, I'm like it's interesting you talk about the, the financial background as well, because like, for example, we've like thrown around the ideas before. It's like, should we start charging for the event? Will that make yeah. it seem more <clears throat> exclusive? Will that make it seem more valuable to people? But mm. as you say, you don't have to dig very far to then realize there's like second and third order consequences for stuff like that. But I, as, as always, this is my view of society. Just make the rich people pay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that make, makes a lot of sense as well. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a bit more generally then about the, the marketing and advertising industry. So you've worked across quite a few of the sort of biggest agencies. Um, what's been your sort of personal view on how diversity, um, on, on, on diversity within the industry and maybe how that's progressed throughout your time? So the thing is, I think occasionally um, the diversity conversation can be a bit unnecessarily skewed towards numbers and not behaviours. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I've noticed. I mean, I've worked, I've worked globally. I worked in Asia for three years, yeah. um, across Asia Pacific. Uh, obviously, I've worked in the UK, I've worked in the US. Diversity has very definitions across in in different parts of the world um but what everyone what every organization seems to latch on to um and and consider to be a sufficient metric of being a diverse and inclusive organization is but we have a woman md mm. i don't know why i did that voice i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> um, uh but we have a, but we have a woman md so we're obviously diverse and that for me is one of the biggest barriers to true progression because people fall back on their numbers and that doesn't mean that an organization isn't sexist it doesn't mean that an organization isn't classist people organizations and organizations i have worked at have used those numbers as as a diversion tactic and have never been introspective about the way they treat people just because you have a woman md or just because you have a senior black man uh it doesn't mean that you're an inclusive organization yeah um uh, so we have so much more work to do, particularly, so I've worked primarily at media agencies. They're notoriously yeah. tough environments, um, loud, extroverted, bullshit, bullshitty environments. Is, is part of that like a sort of hangover from like the old ways of buying media and like big commission structures, like a very salesy type? environment which is obviously now much more digital but it's kind of that's the culture which is just pervaded yeah of course it's um i mean i talk about ageism but i'm actually going to be a little bit aged well not ages there's there's a certain generation of worker who um uh, they're probably in their 50s now um they miss they miss those days um and they will cling on to them uh with all of their might and i would imagine until they retire it's a, I mean, that's the, it's the whole thing about boomers. 
yeah. they get a bad rap and I think often it's uh it's justified. <laughs> so what what are the actions obviously besides the 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 event side of things what are the actions that mm. you feel the industry as a whole def- desperately needs to take and and businesses need to need to start taking? I've talked about this a little bit. I mean, I don't don't really know what I'm going to do about it. Maybe I'll do something. I think we need to move away from big initiatives because they're lip service. There's a psychological theory, which I discovered, and it makes so much sense, called symbolic self-completion, which is about how when we talk about stuff, it feels like we've done it, so we don't do it. It's why okay. uh, New Year's resolutions lists are so popular. You talk about all the things you're going to do for ages, and then fuck it. If I don't do it, it doesn't matter because right, I've had okay. enough. Cu- I've had enough sufficient kudos for me saying I'm going to do those things, mm-hmm. and that's kind of me done. Um, uh, industry in general, but also our, our industry suffers from symbolic self-completion. We have all of these initiatives. We have loads of rainbow flags. We have we you know we'll we'll give free yoga classes on a Tuesday and that's good for people's mental health um, and and that's not enough and I think that's an absolute waste of time and resources. I think we need to focus on um, microaggressions. So microaggressions or all of those little interactions that everybody has every day, um, uh, little snipes or jokes or assumptions that people make that can other. No one looks mm. at the microaggressions and that's how diversity is, that's how inequality is perpetuated. You know, like, my perfect example, say you're in a meeting with all men and just one woman, and the woman is expected to take notes, regardless of her seniority. I've been in that situation many, many, many times, so not just, it's not a flippant example, it's a trend. Yeah. That's a microaggression. Right, I see. And what's the advice you'd give to people who spot these microaggressions to to call them out there and then and there, or...? Yeah, I mean, this is the unfortunate thing, is that, if, if, if we really care about equality and diversity as much as we say we do, then unfortunately there's going to be, there's going to have to be quite a few uncomfortable conversations. So as an individual, you have to decide, am I up for that or not? You know, pick a lane. Um, if you are, then you have to call it out. That's what I think. I call it out a lot and people think that I'm a pain in the arse, but... What can you do? <laughs> this is where, when when you talk about about leadership, this is what's so much yeah. more important than whether you have a, a female CEO or a black CEO. Is the more the leading by example point would be for someone to see their CEO call out that behaviour in a meeting would probably be the actually actually the most sort of empowering thing to see. Oh my god! Could you imagine? I can't even imagine. That would be the most wonderful thing. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully soon. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I guess what what's your take also? I guess from a from a wider industry perspective as well. Um, So I I had Paul Frampton on the podcast uh, sort Ah! of back in the budget. You might have worked with. You know, he used to be my boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to be my boss. So, I love uh, Ramps. Yeah, Paul is Paul is great. He's an, an advisor to our business as well, so he works with our, our, our board um, occasionally on the sort of growth of the business and stuff. He's great. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I was I was just chatting to him about um, recruitment essentially in the industry and essentially how how bad the the industry is at marketing itself. Um, I guess yeah. do do you, do you have any thoughts on what we can do to be more diverse from the bottom up from the from the ground up i think it's i think this stuff is in the works i think there's some lovely organizations or initiatives like the brixton finishing school that 
encourage and train people of various different backgrounds to mm-hmm. enter our industry. I mean, this is one thing that I think has been being done quite well is that there's lots of internships now. Um, lots of lots of agencies I've noticed are favouring internships over graduate schemes um, uh, in order to encourage people of different backgrounds to to, um, work for them. I think, I mean, this is where you get into legal territory, so I would imagine it's probably not as bad as day-to-day life. (laughs) That's my assumption, but it's just an assumption. Yeah, of course. So I just wanted to move on to ask you about something kind of related but slightly different. Um, I don't know how you find the time for all these things, uh, Amy, <laughs> your job and things like Dice. And, yeah. Uh, but you're also you're also a writer. Yeah. I guess I guess it seems like you really sort of pride yourself on having some sort of form of creative outlet. Would that be a fair thing to say? Yes, absolutely. So I um I just love making stuff. I love making stuff because it makes me really, really, really happy. Um, Mm -hmm. And I love that I've discovered that. (laughs) So I have always just judged my, you know, myself, my sense of self-worth comes from producing shit and stuff that is, um, I realised quite quickly, like when I worked in advertising, one of my biggest frustrations was that I always had to, I didn't understand why I always had to sell my ideas into other people. I was like, why can't I just fucking mm. do them? Like, why do I have to get you to buy into my good idea? But I did and it, it's boring. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to, all the big ideas I have, I'm just going to make them myself. <laughs> and is that, that's the kind of, that's the sentiment of, of your of your book, The Little Girl Who Gave Zero Fucks. Is that right? Now this is, I'm going to be a bit David Brent. And be like, oh God, how embarrassing. But I do actually have it here. <laughs> I do have it here. Just because I've got copied, cause, just because we're at home. Yeah, the little girl who goes zero fucks. Uh, <laughs> the audiobook's coming out soon in a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is it self narrated? It is, yes. Amazing. Yeah, I thought about asking a celebrity to do it. But because um, you know that book, Go the Fuck to Sleep. Have you heard of Go the Fuck to Sleep? No, I've not actually. Oh, so it's like a it's it's the same, a similar kind of thing. It's like a nursery rhyme, but for adults. Okay. Um, and it became a bit of a hit uh, a few years ago. Samuel L. Jackson narrated it, oh, wow. and immediately made it a hundred times better, a thousand times better. So I thought about getting a celebrity, but actually, I just I don't have the money. <laughs> um, so nor nor do my publisher. My publisher definitely don't have the money. Um, so so I did it myself. And you've got another, and you've got a new book coming out as well. Is that right? House of Weeds. <laughs> yeah. Can you see it? Um, yeah. Oh, well, so, so yeah. House of Weeds is a. So this is a fairy tale. It's a product. It's a fairy tale written for like teen girls about worrying yeah. less. Um, this is an actual poetry collection. Uh, so one of the one of the things that happened. So. The Little Girl Who Goes Zero Fucks is written in verse. You cannot call it poetry because the poetry poetry community lose their shit if uh, you call something that rhymes poetry. Just the okay. snobbish way that it works. Uh, so when that came out, uh, lots of people was like, lots of people were like, well, it's not poetry. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm I'm going to become a poet then. Um, so I learned how to be a poet. And uh, I did a, went to a Faber Academy course, like this amazing, like really intensive course and, and learned to be a poet. And now I am. And uh, this is a poetry collection called House of Weeds, which is, it's like a fictional story about loads of society's outcasts between the years 1897 and 1941, who find themselves coexisting in a house in Peckham. 
Um, They've all been kind of shunned by society. So some of them are crazy and some of them, you know, don't look how society would like them to look and all those things. And so every single poem is is illustrated by Jack Wallington. He's like a he's like a celebrity gardener. Um, every single poem is written from the perspective of one of these individuals, but it's got the characteristics of a weed. Um, uh, because I find weeds absolutely fascinating. At some point, hundreds of years ago, someone decided that yeah. weeds were undesirable because they're unruly and rebellious and um, they don't quite fit. Uh, but actually, they're beautiful. You just need to learn to live with them. Amazing. And this sounds like when you speak about this, then I, I myself start drawing parallels between the stuff that you do with DICE and your focus on inclusion and diversity and open-mindedness. Yeah, and your creative I think open-mindedness is a really I mean yeah it's um it is kind of that everyone writes about mental health but I write a lot about um people who feel strange and people who feel um Mm -hmm. like they don't fit in and it's just happened that way I've just fallen into writing about those things because uh well it's something I know about to an extent everyone's always called me weird (laughs) <laughs> in my life so you're saying that but that, that shouldn't be an insult yeah I mean it's so I have three nieces um and they're six ten and sixteen um and I hear the way that they use the word weird such a powerful word uh mm. such an I talk about othering a lot it's such an othering vicious word that comes from a place of fear I've been, like, over the years, I mean, I have always been called weird, strange, peculiar, odd, all of those words, and it used to really upset me when people just didn't quite understand what I was getting at or people didn't quite understand what I was saying. But now I've kind of learned. It's taken me to, you know, be in my 30s to um, finally realise that's a fucking good thing. If you're weird, brilliant, you're different. Um, But it's quite hard to to get there. (laughs) I agree. Well, Amy, just yeah. to uh, wrap things up, yeah. I've got three final questions for you. The first one is, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? Right, this is, that is, it's, oh my God, it's such an amazing question. I thought about this for so long. Um, so my answer is, oh, or do we need to pretend that this is like a spontaneous question? <laughs> And that you didn't give it fine. No, no, go okay. for it. No, we asked, we asked um, the same three Yeah, it's an amazing everyone. question. Um, I used to believe that equality would benefit all women. So, you know, if we had financial equality, if we had social equality, you know, from a legal perspective. Um, but now I realise mm-hmm. that it would not. Equality would not benefit all women. Um, more specifically... Okay many women believe that it would not um, because they have been psychologically groomed to rely on men, to seek validation from men, to believe they can only thrive in a partnership with a man. So for those women, and the kind of women I'm talking about are those who have other privileges, so they have quite a nice life. For those women, equality would actually feel like oppression. Mm. Like equality would make them malfunction. It would give them a breakdown. It would totally ruin their lives. Um, and I've realized this over the years, like since I released the Zero Fucks book, and which is considered to be a feminist text, I've realized this over the years that actually those women are a huge barrier to the progression of feminism. Um, uh, there's a, you know, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie in that really famous speech that's in the Beyonce song um, said that, you know, this kind of women are taught to yeah. 
compete with other women for the attention of men. And that's one of the biggest hurdles that modern feminism faces. It, it will always be toxic. I didn't realise how much of a barrier women were to feminism. Drives me mad. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I guess just another sign of the, the complexity of these, um, of these challenges. Secondly, if this wasn't your, your mission, striving for uh, diversity and in inclusion, what, what would be? Oh, it's what we discussed earlier, actually. It's the, um, it's the weirdness thing. I have a massive issue with normality, which is such a weird... That's a really big issue to have. But um, in terms of society's definitions and what we consider to be normal, but uh, more importantly, what we consider to be weird, um, and the people will use the word weird when they don't understand something or when they're slightly scared of something. And so in the books that I write, and actually in all of the stuff that I write, my, I do, my other mission is to make weird a more positive word. It's such a, I mean, it's such a small thing, one word, but it's, it's, it's hugely significant. And it can, call, someone being called weird can damage them forever. Uh, people don't realise the power of their words. Obviously, we all know that. But um, so, yes, it's that. No, I completely agree. And finally, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further book club to read, what would it be? You've probably already read it. Um, and actually, you know what? I'm disappointed if you have, haven't. <laughs> oh, God, and it's not one of my books. Um, it's Why I No Longer Talk to White People About Race okay. uh, by Rennie Edo, Edo Lodge. Um, people need to fucking read this book. Uh, it's been around for years. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a history lesson. It's We do not get taught in schools about the hideous history of racism that the UK has. This book is an amazing history lesson. It's, amazing. it's an amazing lesson in empathy. And uh, you have to be a little bit humble when you're reading it because it also makes you realise that all white people are part of the problem. Yeah. Um, if we can get over ourselves and get over that, then shit, like stuff might change. It's an amazing book. Uh, so definitely read it you'd have loads of amazing discussions about it as well yeah no thank you I'll, I've, I, as i say i've heard of it but ashamedly i haven't read it myself so maybe i'll, I'll add it to the lockdown well that's reading very list. very disappointing <laughs> <laughs> i'm joking so. okay. uh, <laughs> amy it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you i appreciate you i yeah, uh, appreciate you, you finding too. time i've had a lovely time thanks i could chat all day <laughs> Thank you for listening right to the end. I hope that means you've taken something away from the discussion. If you want to learn more on the topics of diversity and culture, I'd recommend you check out the episodes we've done with Paul Frampton and Bruce Daisley. If you know your colleagues would also enjoy the podcast, I'd love for you to spread the word. And of course, I'm always keen to hear your feedback. Please leave a review in your podcast app or get in touch via podcast at journeyfurther.com. Hit subscribe to stay up to date with future episodes. And finally, just another nudge to get signed up to the Journey Further Book Club, our learning community for marketing and business folk. You won't regret it. Just head to journeyfurther.com and follow the book club link to find out more and join the community. See you soon.